Hello, everyone. My name is Todd Glick, and we are back for a very special episode of this podcast. We're joined by a purchasing director of a national home builder. She is also my beautiful mother, Kimberly York. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So let's jump right into it about who you are as a purchasing director. What are your daily responsibilities and what did you do previously to get to your position today? I've been in home building for about 23 years. I've worked in multiple departments. I've done uh, everything from accounting to customer service, worked some on the land acquisition side, also worked with contracts, uh, buyer contracts, mortgage companies, title companies, and also purchasing. And really on a day-to-day basis, I watch um, the market as far as what's going on with pricing for products. I buy products that go into our homes from our trades and um, work with them on ensuring everything gets into the home as needed. Let's talk about the National Association, National Association of Home Builders. What is this organization and what do they do? The National Association of Home Builders is um, a group that really watches over the home building community as a whole um, across the country. So cities have home building associations that are specific to that city, but the National Home Builders Association really works um, over those those smaller um, um, home builder associations. And they are really great at giving good reports, uh, stats on what's going on in the market. They do a lot of lobbying with the White House uh, when issues come up, um, if it's in regards to cost, labor. Um, So it's it's really um, at a national level working for home building home builders. One of those stats that they released, it was um, just recently they said that they're an estimated cost of about, um, for every increase of $1,000 of the median price of a home, of a new home, it will price out 154,000 US households out of the market. And in Arizona, that equates to 3,200 households that would be priced out of the market for every $1,000 increase in the median price of a home. What does this mean for new home buyers and just the overall market as a whole? Yeah, I think this survey um, is important to just continue to keep an eye on because every time a builder has to raise their costs, they also have to raise their sales price because of it. And when you're looking at raising it $1,000 and pricing that many people out of the market, um, that's, that's a big increase. Uh, so most of the time, if, if you're looking at like a first time home buyer, for example, and they're trying to get an FHA loan, they won't be able to qualify for that loan if the sales price continues to increase and just more and more people get priced out of the market. So that's what really has to be watched carefully uh, with these cost increases that we're experiencing right now, because 
eventually we're going to be pricing too many people out of the market. So the affordability of housing right now is a concern across U.S. That's a really interesting point that you bring up. And I think one that is overlooked the majority of the time when looking at the housing market is the fact that every time a house, for example, increasing for a thousand dollars, it doesn't just mean that, um, these people that are getting priced out don't have that extra reserves to pay for it. They just can't qualify for the loan to begin to begin with because of the income requirements. And so when you have a continually increasing $1,000 every single time, and you have 3000 just for Arizona, 3000 households being priced out, that's a lot of, um, a lot of participants in the market that are being um, sidelined and just forced to go into rental income. How much have we seen an increase since the March 2020 lows of the COVID pandemic? Well, in, and I'm just going to talk on an Arizona level. In Phoenix, prices have gone up about $80,000. So the median sales price right now is about three fifty. dollars um, in Tucson, um, it's it's gone about up equally, uh, but the median sales price is about two ninety in Tucson. And what's interesting is the FHA loan limit is three hundred fifty five thousand, and a lot of people, um, first time home buyers, typically get an FHA loan. You don't have to put as much money down. You can have a lower FICO score. And that limit is $355,000. So now those, you know, if, if the median in Phoenix is at 350, um, that's just knocking out a big handful of people because uh, FHA loans are a very popular loan type. So then you have to go to it, a conventional loan to get a conventional loan. Typical credit score is around 720. And you're going to be looking at putting at least 5% down. That FHA, that's very important. And I, and I didn't even think about that myself. The FHA, it's a government-imposed impro- program that allows um, easier access to mortgages for first-time homebuyers, right? And so even though this gives a lot of first-time homebuyers the assistance they need to purchase a house, your minimum, uh, your maximum that you can get is 355000 So the, mi- the minute you get above that level of price, I mean, you're you, you can't use that program, right? You have to go to conventional and that means higher requirements and you might not m- meet those requirements. And with an $80,000 increase and just with a, a simple stat of 3,200 households being um, priced out of the market per $1,000 increase, that's 256,000 households being priced out of the, ma- out of the market. And obviously that's why we're seeing such an increase in rental demand but why are we continuing to see a surge in prices in housing, even though people continually are getting priced out of the market? Well, let's talk about that fact right now. It all comes down to the supply chain. And obviously, we're looking at record high lumber prices. And that's probably the biggest story lately is these lumber prices. Let's touch, touch on that a little bit and uh, why this is such a significant problem lately. Yeah, that's one of the biggest issues going on right now. Um, the lumber since last year, uh, about April time frame, has increased about 180. And I, I'd even say now 
with the latest results about 200%. We're talking $30,000 in lumber increases since, for, since a year ago. And this is based off of um, NAHB standard estimates of lumber. Uh, we also track the random links tracking um, that comes out that shows basically a composite price last year, this time was about $430. Now we're looking at about $1,200 in composite price. And just to give an example, uh, when you look at it, if, if you were to go into like a Home Depot or Lowe's, a, a sheet of OSB used to cost about $15. Now, if you go in and buy that OSB, it's $60 a sheet. And that's just unprecedented. We've never seen this um, in home building. We haven't seen an increase like this. So that's definitely a big factor that's causing prices to increase. But there's also the demand factor. Um, so the demand just on the on the buyer demand that's still occurring. Um, we still have that pool and we've got very low inventory, which is causing um, more people to purchase, which is causing price increase as well. Uh, but just to really hit back on the, the lumber side, what had also happened with the, the lumber prices going up so much is that back last year when everything was going on with, with COVID, um, there were a lot of people that were stuck at home and really wanting to do something. You know, they, they weren't spending money on vacations. Um, so they thought, well, let's do home improvement projects. Well, a lot of them flocked to the big box stores, Home Depot, Lowe's, um, and started buying up lumber. And that has really caused a, a big um, demand on that side. So we've seen that price increases on the lumber um, have not only been just from home building, but also in the home improvement sector as well. Let's stay with lumber for a little longer. Looking at this composite price, the chart from last year, March to September, a significant increase, almost as much as we are seeing from December till now, but around September to early November last year, we saw a really significant decrease in the price. Why is that? Why has, why was that? Why did that happen? So in my opinion, what occurred was first we were really low um, last April and May on lumber. It, it was really an average, I mean, that we were used to seeing. And when COVID hit, Nobody really expected um, the demand like we have seen. The mills started thinking, let's slow down. Um, we're going to have to lay off people. Um, and with that, things just started slowing down. Then we started getting this peak of uh, buyer demand. Builders started seeing more and more people coming out to buy homes. And the mill started having to say, okay, we've got to produce a lot. So once they started seeing that, they, they did produce and they wrote, raised prices because of that. 
then I think nobody maybe projected that that was going to continue. So again, it started dropping down to a more normalized level. Uh, but the buyer demand kept increasing. Um, mills kind of kept having to produce more and more. And that has really caused this, this big swing in pricing to increase. So now we have, you know, lumber uh, suppliers just kind of all bidding to get this product. Everybody's waiting in line um, to get what they need. And the mills know this and they are charging for it. It's really interesting. Like you mentioned, 200% since last spring. I mean, that equates to about $30,000 in a single family home, the price it has to increase because of these lumber costs. Um, have you talked to any commodity specialists about the forecast of the lumber market? Is it going to ease up? Will it normalize? What are we projecting? What forecasters have said is that possibly in the second half of the year, we could start seeing a dip. Uh, that will be based on though, what we what's going on on the home improvement sector. So what we're seeing from the big, big box stores, if that starts to decrease, uh, you know, with people maybe now with the market opening up, um, maybe people are gonna be going out and taking vacations and spending their money on other things and do it yourself projects. So that'll cause the big box stores to come down on pricing and not have to buy as much. Then I think overall that'll help some of the market. And another thing is typically a, a home building is cyclical in a year or so you might see start start to dip in the summertime sales and starts. With that, um, lumber you know trackers might realize that, and then pricing would come down. So it's really hard to say honestly because um, I think forecasters, analysts were thinking that it would come down in the second part of Q2 and. That has not happened. In fact, it's gone up. So it's really going to be dependent on if everything eases up. So both from the home improvement side and from the building side. Something that I find really interesting is staying on the commodity side. A big part of contracts is the futures contracts. And these are basically home builders going out um, to a certain um, manufacturer or trade and getting a contract for a certain amount of wood for a certain amount of time. And obviously this is really where the cost structure comes in because you can hedge against um, high prices or low prices based off um, pre-inclined judgments or projections. What kind of issues are we seeing with the increased demand? Is this affecting futures prices and contracts as a whole? Absolutely. Typically, you're able to lock into um, a contract price for maybe like 60 to 90 days. Uh, but now with just this volatility in the market, suppliers just can't do that. They're, they're saying, you know, we've got to lock in in, in 30 days and that's it. Uh, because when they're going to the mills to buy the product, um, they're having to pay more as well. So it's very unpredictable right now. Um, the best thing to do is, is lock as far out as 
as builders can, um, but that's very difficult to do right now. Yeah, this whole market is so interesting because unlike a stock, a commodity acts just purely off supply and demand and profit incentives. Any rational player, especially in business, they're, they're thinking in a rational idea. They're trying to get more profits. And you have these people going to these mills and they're literally there to buy a certain amount of wood. And it's not like they can't. Like they have to accept the prices because they have a requirement to fill that order so they can build houses. And with everyone having the same problem, you just see a rise of just economies of scale, but obviously nothing rises forever. So it's interesting to see how this market will play out in the next couple of months and how it will continue to affect the housing market. But obviously materials prices, a huge issue. We're going to shift our focus to a December 2020 survey that was taken by the National Association of Home Builders. And um, in this survey, it, it compares significant problems and uh, the percentages of, of home builders that believe it is a significant problem. In 2020, 96% thought that building material prices was um, a major problem, the most significant problem. But it, in 2021, only 89% um, believe that we'll continue to face that as a problem. Um, why do why is that significant? Why why do we see that drop in percentage, even though we continue to see a lumber issue? Well, this survey was taken in December, and probably the builders thought that um, that would come down in 2021. Obviously, it hasn't. It's actually worse. Uh, so I, I would think now if you would ask builders to take that survey today in April, uh, they would be saying it's 100% of an issue. Um, and then also the availability and time right now it takes to obtain building materials is a significant issue. So now not only do we have these rising materials prices, but you've got availability to obtain them. And when, when that occurs and you need the product to build your house, you're going to pay more. So when one builder pays, you know, a certain amount to get it done and the next builder also needs that product and they pay more, it just continues that, that pendulum effect where it's going to continue to rise that price of the product. One of the other significant problems that were, um, highlighted in this survey was the cost slash availability of labor and the concern about employment and the economic, the current economic situation we find ourselves in. Why do you think home builders have such a worry about these two things? We've seen, and this was even before the pandemic, home building has had an issue obtaining skilled labor for construction. A lot of the skilled labor that currently exists um, are older and they'll be retiring. And there's not enough younger people coming into the industry. So that then creates a smaller pool of labor. And when you have a smaller pool of labor and you have to get more done with that labor, of course, you know, price for labor is going to go up. Uh, so that has been a big concern. And then also what happens is there's a lot of bidding kind of words going back and forth with trades. They have a crew, but they need more crews to build houses because they've got to make those commitments that they've made to the builders. 
So they will go out and they will find more crews. Well, that might be from another trade um, that does the same work as they do. And now they're offering better wages, maybe better benefits. And that crew decides to come over to the other builder. And so then you're being faced with, you know, a price increase because of that. The builder typically has to um, get ha have that price increase on their books because they need to pay the trade. So it's, it's definitely a very challenging issue right now, uh, not only in the Arizona market, but it's nationwide where we're facing this issue with um, workforce. And what also is occurring is when back in back with COVID um, and they people were getting paid more on unemployment, they were being able to make more typically than some of the construction jobs out there. And so why go and work and uh, work outside in the 120 degree weather when they are making more on unemployment? So that's another issue. Um, but I think eventually we need to figure out something on a national level with workforce development um, because it will just continue to be a problem. Um, I see that if younger generations are not educated more on what's going on with construction trades and how much they can make and um, the careers that are out there, then again, we're gonna face a big challenge as a nation trying to build homes. Uh, I also think that probably trades have to figure out new solutions. They either need to be forward thinking and um, develop skilled academies that they put their um, new employees through, or they need to think of building in controlled environments where they don't have to have as many skilled workers um, that maybe can be in a warehouse that's air conditioned, uh, they need to think about um, possible AI solutions. So there's a whole, um, and that's a whole other subject with workforce development uh, and, and what's occurring. NAHB has some great programs that um, they work with different um, local Home Builders Association chapters uh, and getting the word out about workforce development. Uh, they've pro they've um, developed certain JTED programs that work with the high schools, and um, that just needs to continue to occur so that, again, younger people start getting more exposed to uh, construction trades and interested in that job opportunity. There's definitely a national employment problem. I saw a study um, the other week saying that there has been more entry-level application openings that haven't been filled um, today than there has been since the 1970s. So we definitely see having living through the ramifications of the stimulus and employment um, payments that were given as, um, as a stimulant for the severe price, whatever you want to call happened, the, the economic um, meltdown of COVID. However, many 
rightfully now say that we spent too much and we gave too much because we are having such a labor shortage. It seems like everyone wants to be TikTok stars nowadays and <laughs> more and more people want to spend their time on uh, technology driven jobs, which it's way less labor um, compared to these construction jobs. And so it's really interesting that you bring up different things like uh, indoor uh, climate controlled building where you can maybe build certain portions of the home in a, in a better climate. So get more people interested that way or even uh, introducing artificial intelligence in the development of homes. It's definitely not something I've seen or heard of too much of lately, but let's talk a little bit about that because it's very interesting. Have you seen any developments in that field of artificial intelligence? And do you think we're in a, in a, like a decade timeframe where it'll have a real significant impact on employment the same way we'll see um, truck drivers already starting to be nervous about uh, their jobs as we see electrical trucks that can drive themselves and with lower, lower probability of fatality or um, an accident occurring, obviously, eventually, once you can ensure that um, reliability, you're going to take that option. It's just a, a cost benefit. Um, when, when do you think that happens in the home building? You know, I would think in the next 10 years, the way technology has advanced over the last just 20 years, I would expect something to start occurring. Just as an example, and this is kind of that, you know, controlled environment, is you have framers um, making panels in their yards. And what they would do is they, they take a set of blueprints and they put it into their computer system. And the, basically the computer system reads exactly what wood needs to be cut and where. And then once that wood is cut, they're able to put it together just kind of like a puzzle and uh, put a panel together in their yard. And then they ship those panels to the job site where they have workers, not as many as you would have for like a stick frame project. And those workers on the job site are able to put the panels together again, kind of just like a puzzle. Um, and it, number one, it reduces your waste. It reduces your time cycle for putting that house together. So just with those kind of advances, I foresee that happening more and more. There's certain jobs, of course, that can't be done um, by a computer. They will have to be manual jobs. Uh, but as, as, again, we have this labor shortage issue, if we don't start making changes and people thinking outside of the box, we will just continue to have this problem and building will be delayed further and further. So I think we're going to be in that time where you have to make a change in order to get the product that you need. Yeah, I mean, labor is such an important part of the supply chain and the fact that we've already seen that one of the supply chain pieces, lumber, is seeing a significant increase in price. But also now we're talking about labor seeing a significant increase in price because the fact that no one wants to do these jobs. Therefore, the people that want to do them, um, they can charge more or just in the pure fact that there's more business and it needs to be done. And the people who are already in the field, you'll pay them more. You'll pay a premium 
to get it done now um, instead of paying shorter wages and not getting it done at all because that means potential loss of business in the future. So you're seeing a, a game theory play out with uh, costs in this market. And it's very interesting to dissect. So let's keep on this supply chain theme. And we've already hit on lumber, but now let's hit on some of the other big themes and um, that are really drastically impacting not only the housing market, but just the entire um, economy and international trade as, as a whole. And uh, especially international trade seeing a huge issue with transportation. Let's, uh, let's talk about this. You know a little bit more than me about this issue. So uh, please elaborate why we're having uh, such a problem getting ports uh, situated and getting uh, materials shipped to where, where they need to be shipped. Yeah, transportation has become a major issue. Again, like you were saying, not just for home building, but a lot of different industries. And it's basically, it's coming down to, there's not enough trucks, there's not enough drivers anymore. Um, we have a, a lack of shipping containers. And so really what has happened is back in last fall, we, there seemed to be a surge coming from Asia with um, production. And so more and more ships became, began arriving in the port of Los Angeles, Long Beach, and then all the other West Coast cities. And it was just, they couldn't handle it. Um, ships holding as many as 14,000 containers sat offshore for more than a week. And sometimes there were more than 40 ships waiting to offload. So that's just not um, a typical situation. It might be a handful of ships, not 40 ships. And so then you just create this huge bottleneck. And officials are really just blaming it on, again, shortages of equipment and then the labor needed to unload the ship. You've just got this big bottleneck. Hauling away the product that's coming off of those ships, it can take 8,000 trucks to haul the cargo away from a ship. 8,000, that's a lot. And when all those trucks hit this road at the same time, you know, you don't have enough dock workers to try to unload it. You don't have enough truckers to take it off. And then you've also got rail cars that they're loading on rail cars. That's also been affected. So it's really, um, traders frequently describe the whole transportation as a nightmare right now. And it, we're, it's creating shortages that we just haven't ever seen before. I can definitely see the picture with the truckers. Less and less people are wanting to have that job. It's, uh, it's tough on the health. First off, second off, there's not a, a long time horizon as a career because we've already talked about uh, emerging technology taking over that, um, that industry as a possible employment. So it makes sense while we're seeing a shortage and all of that. And even um, shipping containers, we know those are in big shortage as well. However, something that I was just thinking about is you're, you're seeing a lot of these bottlenecks occur in the Western regions, but you had a big um, COVID, um, COVID pandemic, I don't know what you'd call them, restrictions, um, where you can only have a certain amount of workers work, right? I mean, you, you right. have to maintain social distancing and all that. And since I, I really feel like um, ports are one of those few jobs in the world that are still union-based, and so... I don't feel as if there's not um, laborers that are willing to work at these ports. I feel like it's more as if they're, ain't, they're not able to 
operate at full capacity and the, um, the ships out there, they can operate at full capacity because it doesn't take a large crew to, um, to man a ship. I mean, it's just, you're just driving it, but it takes a large crew to man um, the disbursement of a, of a cargo ship. What, what are your th- uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I feel the same. I, I think in a lot of different industries, what has happened is um, based on, like you said, COVID restrictions and um, being socially distanced, you have to be careful with, um, with that. And then you've got probably a lot of workers that got sick. I mean, a lot of people back in um, November, December, January timeframe were out sick. And so when one worker goes out sick, if he has come in contact with other workers around him, then they also have to be out sick. And that's a two week delay. Um, so I'm sure that has caused problems as well. Like they had, it has in other industries. Well, let's shift our focus to weather. Now uh, we've had some severe winter storms in, um, in the past couple of months, it's affected fuel drastically, cement, copper, resin, um, other commodities. Let's first talk about resin because this is something we talked about and I had no idea how important it was to not only the construction of houses, but also um, important inputs into things like cars and smartphones. So um, explain this a little um, in depth and uh, why it's so important. Yeah, I didn't realize the impact either. (laughs) Um, Apparently resin, um, petrochemical, plants are 90% based out of Texas. And when we had this big freeze back in February in Texas, it created a huge issue. It um, froze a lot of the pipes that held the, the polyethylene, the polypropylene, and that caused these plants to have to shut down. They could not produce resin. Resin is in a whole bunch of products. Like you said, it's not just homes, but it's cars, smartphones. It goes, it's into plastics. So even if you think about PVC pipes, um, pipes that builders use for uh, underground development, that has been severely impacted. Uh, um, Resin goes into OSB, Um, glue has been, glue of all things has been an issue um, that has created issues trying to get radiant barrier because we don't have glue that can um, attach the radiant barrier to the OSB. Uh, We've got issues with ABS pipe, with plumbing, uh, appliances. I mean, it just really does go on and on. Resin is in a lot of products and it is causing a severe disruption in the whole industry. Uh, It's just creating a ripple effect. It's really interesting. We talked about lumber and that's the input to the house and how that increased price leads to a house increase. We also talk about labor, another input to a house, how the shortage in labor leads to increases, which leads to the house increase. Um, We now talked about resin, which is an input to an input to a house and how that's also increasing. So it seems like we're going through almost a perfect storm of a supply shortage from not just one layer, but multiple layers throughout the, the chain. And multiple. Um, yeah, yes. and this leads to not only shortages in the development of houses, but 
I mean, we're talking just basic appliances, right? Plumbing, um, electric, car, garage doors of all things, HVAC systems, interior doors, paint, windows, all these things we're seeing supply chain shortages. Um, talking about another NAHB survey that was released um, saying that 51% of builders saw that a major problem was um, was obtaining appliances in a timely fashion over the past six months. So let's talk more about supply chain issues of not only the things we discussed, but some of these alternative um, implications as well. So yeah, it's really interesting, again, with appliances being such a high demand right now. And again, I think it is not only with the do-it-yourself projects, people trying to do renovations in their you know, current home, uh, but it's also the demand that we're having on the home building side. And so 90% of builders said that, yes, this is a problem trying to get appliances. Also, what we've seen are issues with other products that um, have really started to have, have implications on the supply chain and then just the building time frames. Uh, things, again, like radiant barrier. Um, that's just never been an issue that's come up. And now builders are faced with um, trying to find alternatives to radiant barrier. You've got uh, tubs and toilets being an issue right now that they just can't produce enough. It's interesting too. I mean, I've even heard it on um, the RV side with you know recreational vehicles, trailers, that literally they can't produce some of the trailers because the plants making the toilets, which are mostly plastic, uh, they can't produce them right now. Uh, you've been, we've been seeing issues with cement. It's been on allocation. Uh, insulation has been a, a nationwide problem. It's also been on allocation. Copper is really at an all-time high right now with pricing. It's gone up more than 80% in cost. And so we're faced with not only price increases, severe price increases, but also just the availability to get it. Um, garage doors has been a major issue for home builders because of the steel. There's not being enough uh, generated right now in that aspect and the costs. So yeah, it's just, it, it really does go on and on with the issues that builders are facing, not only from a supply perspective, but also a cost perspective for all of these products. It's very interesting just going through all the different supply uh, inputs on the chain and how all these increases lead to overall housing increases. So let's go to just oh, the overall market view again. I mean, it's the reason I feel like studying the housing market is so important is because it has so many different inputs that it takes to create the end output and the end output is such a, a necessity in life, therefore leading to the demand. It obviously makes sense that the prices continue to increase. However, there is a lot of lands, not only in America, but throughout the world that has not been touched yet. And we can still build new houses. I'm sure your company has purchased land that they're ready and when and ready to make more houses on. Um, so going about all this in a kind of meta sense, it makes sense that right now there are all this in, influx of liquidity that was provided through these stimulus bills. It, this money is trying to find a home 
and this these these literally trying to find a home and these home prices are increasing just because of that fact alone because more people have money and they're willing to buy more assets with it and the most valuable asset one can own in a lifetime for most people is a house i mean probably 99% of them so what i kind of see is almost a lag effect that is occurring where you don't have enough houses in inventory right now but obviously you're going to continue to make houses which dilutes kind of the overall demand proposition that we're occurring right now like the reason everything is getting bid up is because there's such a low inventory but right. the minute our inventory outpaces the amount of money being supplied into the economy then we'll finally see a correction in prices however we've seen historic levels of spending by the government that leads to more cash in the economy um all of this has been leading to the higher prices that we see so i want to kind of talk about this kind of has to do with interest rates because that sets the whole market rules for um the housing and any industry doing business the when they cut interest rates all the way down to 0% they allowed max risk meaning i mean in a perfect capitalist system you really shouldn't be able to go below 0% interest rate because it makes fundamentally no sense to be buying debt at a negative percent return even though it's currently being done in many countries throughout the world let's just take america for example it's currently not being done they cut it down to 0% allowing people to get for further and further out in the risk spectrum because they have more liquidity available to them through options like credit because of their interest rate not being as high allowing for different um projects to be now um operating at a profit therefore they can actually go through and um commence those projects i feel as if we're going to see a, almost a roaring 20s like scenario where you have so much you have this low low level of interest rates allowing more credit for builders these builders are going to go out purchase more land make more houses and this demand is going to slowly decrease and the inventory is going to be slowly increase until finally i think at the end of the decade we'll see a market scenario where we don't we have way more houses than we have buyers just on the pure fact that the buyers and we've already touched on this in the beginning of the podcast the buyers are no longer able to afford the houses or even qualify um for the houses in a mortgage because of their income requirements because of the fact that their income is not increasing at the same rate as all these commodities and inputs that are going into the production of the output which therefore has to increase its price so that the company creating the output can actually operate a profit so what do you think is kind of our uh, uh if we zoom 10 years into the future where do you see the housing market well again that's it's hard to predict um housing is very cyclical uh, we have seen the ups and downs in the 1980s. You had the 18% interest rates, which was crazy. Um, in the early 2000s, we had that huge housing boom where, yeah, sales prices increased rapidly. We didn't have great, um, I don't think, loan guidelines in place. So anybody wanting to buy a house could buy a house. And, and then we saw the fall because of that. Um, so now we're back on the high side where, you know, we're able to produce um, the, the demand is there. 
But again, it, the supply is what we're struggling with right now. So a lot of builders are just trying to build as fast as they can um, with the extended build times, of course, and with the extended uh, product delays that we can't continue to see. So it, it is hard to say that, um, yeah, if, if we come to a point where the inventory levels increase substantially, uh, and then also we're pricing more and more people out of the market, um, it, it's definitely going to slow down. Uh, when that occurs, it, it's, it's just hard to predict. Um, you know, we do see that there are more people flocking to buying homes. And I do think that has to do with, with ha what happened last year with COVID. A lot of people that were maybe in apartments or um, even in really tight urban um, environments have realized that owning a home, having a backyard, um, having a place uh, to be able to you know, live makes more sense than being, being stuck inside such a small, um, you know, location. So I think that that's what we've also seen. And, and there was a study again, done by NAHB that they found that about 25% of home buyers, um, had the preference of actually buying a home versus living in kind of a, you know, a smaller environment. So, Prior to COVID, 26% of the buyers wanted to buy a home in an outlying suburb. And since the beginning of the pandemic, that share is now 30%. So it continues to, I, I think, increase because people are, again, wanting that space. Um, you know, if we have to go into a lockdown situation again, people want to have a yard. <laughs> they want to at least be able to be outside um, in their restricted area. And I think you're definitely right. However, I don't think the whole idea of like truly suburban growth will ever occur again in this type of civilization that we have in America because of the fact that the services that are offered when you live in a city, even in a city that you can have your own um, backyard in, um, being close to a transportation system that is free to um, to citizens, right? Being close to public libraries, public education, all of these are services that aren't necessarily available or available at scale in um, suburban areas. So I think there's definitely a limit there. However, definitely uh, for the people who are owning apartments in urban areas that want a yard can definitely probably afford one because those urban apartments are so expensive, which kind of highlights the idea of, of rental rates. Um, if you own an apartment, good by you because you're probably making a lot of money. But if you're renting an apartment, it's it's almost a death spiral because those rents, as we're seeing right now, they're reaching all-time highs in all kinds of different cities. These rental rates make it even harder for someone to purchase a house in the future because higher rental rates means lower amount of savings that they can put away for a, a future house purchase. And the only way that they can keep up is increasing their income at the same rate that their rental rates are increasing. And yep. it seems that you're not only competing against rental rate increases, but you're also competing against housing prices increases as continually we see um, every time a thousand dollar income increases on a house, um, 
3,000 Arizonan people are priced out of the market, 150,000 uh, nationwide. So you're, it's almost a death spiral where you're competing against rental rates, you're competing against housing prices, and you're also competing with a store of value, the U.S. dollar, that continually gets debased because of um, liquidity programs like the, the Affordable Care Act and um, all kinds of different things that we've seen since the COVID pandemic. All this money has a, a price when it's invented out of thin air. And the, the way it, it has a price is it's, um, it's a silent one. It's called debasement. It's where your purchasing power is less relevant as it was before that money printer was turned on. Therefore, you're not only competing against rental rates, you're not only competing against house prices, but you're also competing against the store value that's working against you. I don't see how we have a sustainable market where we'll continue to see more and more buyers. Um, the only way I, I actually, I will caveat that with one point, um, this money is going somewhere, right? So those rental rates that are being paid that are increasing higher, that's going to an asset holder, which therefore can use that money to buy more assets. So I think we're seeing that type of um, scenario play out. And that's why I don't think we'll see any large um, decrease in prices until we reach a point where it's so concentrated in ownership that the overall society gets fed up with the idea of paying its share to live. And um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, rental rates are just at an all time high right now. Um, you know, you could go out and, and rent a three bedroom, one bath home uh, for apartment for $2,000. Uh, you could get that same, um, scenario with three bedroom, two bath for 1500 mortgage payment. Um, you are owning it, you're paying taxes, you're able to write that off. It just doesn't make any sense um, to rent right now. I, I think the people that have to rent um, might have problems qualifying. So again, you know, as, as prices continue to rise, we might see more of that occurring. Um, but really, right now, it's, you know, really, why would you rent? Why wouldn't you put your money into um, something that can eventually make you more money? Now, with that being said, again, sales prices are high right now. So if you have a home and you can sell it right now, it is prime time. It's a seller's market. Um, sell your home. I'm sure you have equity in it. And, and maybe you don't make the decision to buy yet. Maybe you wait for a little bit because I do think that prices might um, not dip a lot, but maybe just normalize. And so that's really what we're looking at. I think that um, people that are, are going out to rent just have to for a necessity. I think that you touched on a very interesting point with almost the contango-like trade that's occurring in the rental market. Like contango refers to the idea of like what happened to the oil market last year in 2020, where people were paying others um, to take their oil because they didn't have a place to store it. And um, usually you pay money to get the oil, but they were paying others to not have to receive the oil because they didn't have any place to store it, which means that oil prices went negative. And I think that's what you're seeing kind of here where you can have ownership of a house for less money 
monthly rent than you could than paying monthly rent and not having ownership to a house. The only difference is the kind of the mortgage payment you're paying when you're owning, when you're in a rental is to a, a single individual that that isn't giving you the rights to a home over a long period of successful payments. But when you have a mortgage, if you make those successful rent payments that are less than rent payments, then you're paying those rental payments to a bank, which will give you the title once a completion of that mortgage is um, finalized. And so, right, any rational participant in an economy would choose ownership over tenancy, especially when the ownership is cheaper um, than the tenancy. However, there's a reason for this, right? In 2008, there was very low requirements to get a loan. And that's why we see a huge bubble occur and uh, so much um, demand that outweighed supply because of the fact that so many people were allowed to become participants in the market. The minute that is restricted up, the minute that was shored up by different regulations, less and less people are able to qualify for loans. Only the top, um, top people that have a good amount of income in relation to the house they're trying to buy, as well as assets and reserves, that's the only way you're going to be able to be qualified for a mortgage-like loan. And so what you see here is that the reason the rental market is higher than the average mortgage cost is not only low interest rates, but it's because of the fact that people are willing, are not able to qualify for a mortgage because of these requirements, because of the fact that they're not able to put away as much money as they're getting in income or the fact that their income is just not rising at the same rate housing prices are rising. And so let's talk about millennials and first-time buyers. How do you get out of that death spiral of entering the economy um, without having a significant increase of income? Well, I, I think we are seeing that we are um, getting more millennials purchasing uh, especially, you know, in the last year, if millennials were um, living with their parents and then decided, okay, it's time to buy a home, interest rates are really low, maybe they were saving up a down payment. Again, those FHA, um, an FHA loan is a perfect um, kind of situation for a first time home buyer. So they're able to take advantage of that. So I do see that becoming more and more of a larger buyer demographic. Um, and it's very interesting. Millennials are moving to Arizona, to Phoenix, Tucson, um, more and more. So Phoenix ranks right now as the number three among the top cities where millennials are moving. And that was a study done by Smart Asset. The report said that um, basically from ages of 25 to 39, millennials make up 23% of Phoenix's population. Uh, that's about 390,000 people. So it, it does seem that more and more people are moving to Arizona, which is a good thing. And then also um, that they're wanting to purchase a home. They're seeing that it makes more sense than to rent. And it obviously makes more sense to rent. However, we continue to see rental properties and large skyscraper skyscraper like rental properties being uh, produced in large cities like Phoenix. And um, they're, 
they're coming online every every other minute. I mean, the more and more it seems like the rental properties are outweighing the production of of just basic housing properties. And I think the only reason that is is because the people making these rental properties know what type of market is can is going to continue to persist. The fact that less and less people are going to be able to qualify for loans, less and less people are going to be able to afford houses because of the fact that they continue to increase faster than wages increase. And, um, and not only that, they're most likely, if not owning a home right now, they're renting. And therefore, every rent prices are increasing. And so their savings are going to decrease as well. Um, how in the world is this going to be over? Taken because I, I really think some of the reason you see such an influx of buyers to Phoenix is just because um, we're more relaxed on regulation than other um, closer states, as well as the fact that um, there's a lot less environmental issues in weather, as I say, like there's no uh, hurricanes, earthquakes um, that occur in Arizona. And not only that, it's, it's, it's very nice on weather 365. And so I understand why we see a spillover, especially with the idea of getting um, more yard space. Uh, it's more attainable here in Arizona. But other than the fact of other people from different states moving in and obviously bidding up this individual market in Arizona, um, a nationwide issue is still the fact that less and less people are able to buy. And so how are home builders going to get around the fact that one day there will be a, a there will be a day where Maybe house prices never go down, but there's such a concentration of home buyers that um, there's no longer new, like not new mortgages being taken out, but new buyers entering the market. Like, therefore, it's just an, a buyer that already owns a home. He's just buying another property and then renting that property out. Right. And the same person that couldn't buy that house, they could probably rent that same house. Um, it probably is more money than the mortgage, but they couldn't qualify for the mortgage. So they have to rent from this person intermediary between the bank that takes on the risk instead of the bank taking on the risk. So again, I mean, you're seeing house prices bid up because the people that can qualify for them know you better buy now because it's it, people are needing a place to stay and they will pay the rent prices. Um, eventually, you're just going to have less and less people willing I mean, new, new people coming into the market, such a concentration of, of uh, ownership. How will that affect the market if that does play out? I, I do think there's a migration into Arizona, like you were talking about, um, because not only do we have less regulations than some of the states, but um, we have better prices. I mean, if you looked at a uh, home price in California versus what it is in Arizona, it's extremely um, less. So I think that you have people migrating because of that. And then, like you said, because of weather and really, I think on the rental side, they're also going up. Like you said, I mean, the prices continue to move up and up on the rental side. So it's same as a, you know, if you wanted to get a mortgage, you might not be able to afford it, not just qualify, but like afford the monthly payment. Um, and that's really what it gets down to is, can you afford that monthly payment and do you qualify? So, you know, we do have, um, we do see, and I know all builders see 
investors coming into the market, um, purchasing homes so that they can rent those out. I, I think that is definitely something that's watched closely though, because um, in the early 2000s, a lot of homes were bought by investors. And again, um, when the downturn came, those homes were sometimes let go and foreclosed on. So I, I don't know if we're gonna see as, as many of those. And, and it's really just the whole concept of this home housing affordability. I mean, it's a, it's a top subject for um, associations like you know, NAHB. Um, they continually lobby for lower, um, lower costs in certain areas like lumber. Um, they're lobbying with the White House over what they can do on lumber prices. And I, I think everybody realizes that this can continue to be a problem with the affordability um, when we continue to price people out of the market. So it's not just on the rental side, it, you know, it's both rental and, and home building new homes um, that we're gonna be seeing an issue if, if everything keeps going up. Like you said, people's incomes aren't increasing as much as the price of rentals or new homes are increasing. And uh, that will be a problem in the future. Yeah, it, it really is such an interesting dynamic. I mean, you have NAHB trying to raise um, awareness of the fact that housing prices continue to increase because of these different inputs from the supply chain saying, we need these prices to come down, but they can't come down. The reason being is every price is set by um, supply and demand according to efficient market hypothesis. And um, therefore any rational participant can only, they're only gonna purchase what they can purchase to uh, maintain a profit. However, I mean, when I'm thinking about this, if I'm looking at, say your company, they, they produce 10 houses in a new uh, subunit. If I purchase, if I can, if I can qualify uh, for a mortgage to purchase all those homes, and I do, and then I find renters for all those homes, I will be operating at a significant profit just by doing that alone. And I really won't be paying anything. It's kind of almost risk-free other than the, maybe the initial deposit I have to put down as a collateral, but the rest of collateral, it's all based off my merit. It's all based off my reputation um, as a, as a an economic entity, right? So how in that, I mean, I think that this is the significant problem. I don't think the problem is um, requirements of, of new household buyers, because like in 2008, when they're too laxed, you have a big boom and bust cycle, and that's really bad for the economy. I don't think the requirements that are set now need to be changed or lowered. I think they're um, set for a reason and um, well set. However, I think the requirement needs to be put on um, upper level, like almost the top 10% that own more than like, say, five households. There's, I don't think there's any reason for anyone to own more than five households because at that point, you make it harder for the other people in the market to, to afford it because obviously you're going to have more money if you have that type of ability to, to own more than five households so you can bid up the price. And, and this especially benefits you in a market that is so low in inventory. Um, money thrives when scarcity is, is inputted because of the fact that um, less and less availability, that's just basic supply and demand, prices are gonna go up. And the person with the most money is gonna be able to afford that. 
And uh, this is just a ripple effect that we'll continue to see. What do you think on a potential idea of like reducing the amount of uh, extreme ownership of households? I don't think the idea of uh, reducing the amount of rental properties is anything in favor, but I think it would just have an immediate impact on the reduction of rental properties if you reduce the amount of households that can be purchased because it automatically increases the, uh, the supply of households in the overall economy. Yeah, I think that's watched carefully um, by uh, lenders. They really have a lot of requirements um, when someone has, you know, multiple homes that they are um, requesting uh, to put on a loan. So I think it's it's watched, um, and and like I said, it's you know, not only watched by lenders, but I know builders also are, are really careful with it as well, because they don't want to fall into kind of the same kind of issues that were faced back in, you know, the 2008 timeframe, where we had a lot of foreclosures come on the market because of that. Let's talk a little bit about foreclosures. We've heard a lot of people talk about the fact that since the pandemic uh, and that uh, introduction of, a, of an act, an executive act that allowed people to uh, forbear on their, not forbear, but um, suspend their mortgage payments mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they could push it down the line. Are those mortgage payments finally being paid? What's the deal with this? Is there implications that are um, silently talked about here? So it was actually pushed um, to June uh, it was supposed to be January where um, that was going to be lifted and, and people had to start paying again, but it's been pushed to June. So it's going to be interesting to see, um, will we start seeing more foreclosures coming on the market because of it? And, you know, if, if you hadn't made a payment for almost 12 years because you've been given that um, kind of uh, forbearance on it, what, what are we going to see? And will that result in, if, you, if more foreclosure properties come into the market, foreclosures come in at a much lower sales price. If they do, and then we start having a lot of buyers buy up those foreclosures, we have more inventory on the market, uh, much lower sales prices, that could take a negative effect on what's happening in the housing market. Um, so it, time will tell with that. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, you have 12 months of payments that if they haven't been paid, they're obviously they're not going to be if they're due on June 1st, for example, we'd see instant calamity in the markets. I don't think we'll see that. I think we'll just see um, an addition to the overall principle of the loan. Um, and then they'll be paid interest on top of that, which would be better for the bank in the long run because they make money through interest and um, which would probably recoup some of the losses that they'd have had to um, go about since they hadn't had this constant income from some of the um, mortgage mortgagees. So what I'm kind of seeing in my head play out is the more and more people aren't paying um, 
And then they add, they're, they're just borrowing from their future selves, right? They're just saying, I'll pay it in the future, especially if it's just added. If it's, if you have a 30 year loan, you didn't pay the first year. Now it's basically a 31 year loan, but that's an extra year interest. It doesn't sound bad because presently you don't have to pay that money, but in the future you have to pay that money. And I think that's kind of um, an idea that a lot of Americans, even our government has in the fact that, oh, we can just keep borrowing from our future selves and um, yeah, we'll have to pay it eventually, but we don't have to do it right now. Um, I think eventually we'll see the impacts of that type of thinking in this market, but not from the top, um, the top holders, the top ownership, the top 10%. I think from their standpoint, they're financially secure. Even a downturn wouldn't necessarily disrupt um, their financial independence. I think it's more of a, of a, a risk for the middle class because they have less reserves available and they're most likely the people, the lower class probably don't even own a house to begin with. So we're really just looking at the middle class here where the middle class, they're probably the ones not paying the mortgage mortgages. Um, I'm, I'm sure a good portion are still, but there is a portion not. And so when that, when those payments are just borrowed into the future, um, that's a higher debt, which therefore limits their further participation in the economy through credit because of uh, loan requirement. So I, I think what we're seeing here is almost um, a lagging effect. We, we see it in the supply mm -hmm. chain from uh, the disruption of, of, uh, of mills and lumber and uh, the disruption of weather with resin and the disruption of just uh, technology of good and bad. I mean, money is a technology and um, inventing technology, inventing money out of thin air had, has had an impact on labor, right? So we've seen all kinds of different impacts on to prices. And I think it all comes back down to money. I mean, all of these things are based in money. And the thing that is used to buy these things is money. And we just continue to debase our currency by um, increasing increasing units in the system by giving more and more money to businesses to prop up the economy. Do you have any thoughts on the idea of a potential, um, I guess it wouldn't be a credit crisis, it'd be a debit crisis because there wouldn't be enough money to actually be lent out because eventually the money is just thought of as worthless. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, when you were talking about what's going on with the um, potential um, forbearances, um, that might have something to do with it. Uh, I do know that, you know, there were people that were able to do refis too because of the low interest rates. So if they had a, um, a high interest rate and high, high mortgage payment, they were able to refi that into a lower payment. And then that just overall gets more money into the economy. Um, so I'm not really sure what we would see um, from that perspective in the future. Um, I, I do just know that at some point we could potentially see more supply on the market um, if people do let these houses go uh, because of foreclosures. And again, that will affect the, the overall housing market. So 
I got three questions to finish off this podcast. And uh, the first one has to do with Bitcoin. It's your thoughts on Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, obviously a Bitcoin advocate. And um, a lot of this to me is so interesting because it is centered around the idea of ownership. Um, one of the most important things to own in a lifetime is a home uh, to call your own. Um, even the home I have currently, it is mine. It's in my name. But at the end of the day, the exclusive right is held by the bank and therefore um, eventually owned by a private entity that owns the security of the bank. So what we're looking at right here is an economy that is propped up by a current fiat system. And that fiat system has shown its effect in the past uh, year through its incredible amount of money printing that occurred through the course of 2020 and is being planned through a new infrastructure bill. My, um, I, I know we've talked about this a little bit in private discussions, but what do you think uh, a potential $1 trillion infrastructure bill means for not only uh, the economy and the housing market, but what it means for money as whole? Like, what do you think about when a government says they're gonna spend $1 trillion in infrastructure? I think that's a lot of money. <laughs> I think that's, um, you know, how much are in debt is our country right now? That, you know, that's a big concern. When they're uh, looking at 28 trillion to be exact. 28 trillion. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting thought because I'm not sure how we're going to be able to continue to spend when we're, we have that much in debt. I've, uh, I've recently read a book called the, the Deficit Myth, and it explains the, the flaw of thinking that the government cannot run at a deficit. The actual truth is the United States is the world reserve currency, and we have the monopoly of issuing that currency. We, the people, actually technically do not. A private business called the Federal Reserve that isn't federal and uh, really doesn't really have any reserves when you really look at it. Um, they're basically the ones that get to decide how much money needs to be printed. And that is our inflation rate. And so they're the ones that the government asks, all right, we need a $1 trillion, um, make $1 trillion for us. And they do that. And um, therefore the government being at a debt really isn't them being at a debt. It's, it's, it's them, even when there are debts to other countries, um, those countries are buying the debt in US yields. And so since we control the amount of, how much interest they're making on the yields based off the Federal Reserve's interest rates, we, are have, we still have a lot of control over the entire economy. That's why nothing has changed. We continue to go into debt, but we, are at our, we still are a very po powerful nation, if not um, the most powerful nation. In my opinion, we are the most powerful nation in the world. And it won't stop because of increasing debt we are the monopoly issuer of that debt. So <laughs> you um, forbearing on a loan on something that you own, it doesn't matter. You still own it. Um, you still can produce more of it if you need to. We could solve the debt tomorrow. We could say it's all wiped out. But what that would do, it would debase all of our other, um, all of our other currencies that we hold. So for example, if the government's debt is $10,000 and I hold $5,000 in equity, you hold $5,000 in equity, and that $20,000 is all that's in the economy, but the, the government wants to pay off that debt, they can just issue $10,000 of new money to pay off that debt, 
But what they do in that process is they increase the units in the system to 30,000. So that 5,000 that we own um, both individually, it's not worth 5,000 anymore. It's, it's worth less in purchasing power because the overall market's no longer 20,000, it's 30,000. So my question about Bitcoin is um, there's only 21 million. There's never going to be more or less. And um, what are your thoughts on the idea of scarcity in terms of money? And do you think there's any um, ramifications um, in, the, in, the, in the future from the current monopoly of money and how it could be changed to a decentralized network? Well, wow, you're really going outside my wheelhouse now. <laughs> I know that um, I, I agree with you that um, eventually, you know, with especially things like Bitcoin and, and different um, currencies out there, um, that's going to change the system. Uh, so not a lot of <laughs> good, good thought on that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that eventually things are going to have to change. And I know uh, I own Bitcoin now, so that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The second question, aliens, are you a believer or not? <laughs> Absolutely. Why? Uh, because it's a really, really big universe and we don't know what's out there. All right. And then the third and final question is um, how much sleep do you get a night and why? Oh, that's a really good question. I actually saw a study the other day that says people that get uh, seven to eight hours of sleep a night have less likelihood of getting dementia when they're older. So I'm definitely a fan. I try to get as much sleep as I can. Probably eh, it might be like six to seven hours, but um, yeah, it's a priority for sure. Yeah, it's a priority for me too. I'm religious. I try to get about nine hours a night. And um, I feel like if I get nine hours a night and I wake up in the morning, I have no excuses not to get any, every, anything and everything I want to get done in that day. So uh, that's my idea on sleep. But hey, this podcast was an incredible learning experience. I'm glad we were able to do it. I uh, learned a lot and it was a lot of fun. Do you have any final remarks you'd like to send us off with? Well, my, a question uh, for you. What's your thoughts on exercise? Exercise? Um, I think that it's very important. It's just like um, I have the Pyramid of Success by John Wooden above me. And one of his blocks in the pyramid is condition. And it says mental, moral, physical uh, rest, exercise, and diet must be considered. Moderation must be practiced and dissipation must be eliminated. And I think this uh, kind of goes into that question about sleep, um, exercise, and, uh, and diet as well. All three things, if you practice uh, um, a principle of achieving the highest amount of excellence you can, obviously, if you are um, in a very um, dire situation, you don't have the resources to get the nutritional food um, to supply your body with, um, you can't do it, but you can, you can do the best you can do, right? So if you have access to good food, if you have access to amount of time to sleep, if um, a good bed to sleep in, if you have access to uh, time to run, if you have access to go to a gym, do some yoga, even meditation, I think all those are form of exercising, uh, not only your mental body, but your physical body. 
and and just almost um, I like to think of it as like you're callousizing your brain. Um, those calluses that you get on your hands from a lot of hard work. Um, when you put your body through hard work, you're putting your mind through it as well. And um, you're just you're making your mind harder and stronger for future um, future things to come. I totally agree. Well, all I can say my final words is it really looks like I did something right in my life having such a wonderful son. He's a very uh, intelligent and uh, well-rounded person. So I really appreciate uh, the conversations that we had. It was fun. And, and thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and um, all love mom. Talk to you soon. Uh, bye. Love you.